so I got this text from Dave last week. Here's what he said. Would you preach May 6th? Assuming you're okay with the subject matter, able to be vulnerable with it, respectful of Julie, etc. It'd be a lot more powerful and authentic coming from you. Plus, I'll be out of town. <laughs> now we know the real reason. Said, you know, I want to look at the topic. I can't remember what it was, but yeah, I'm sure I'll be okay. Well, thanks. We can talk when I get back. Or text. Just email you the series notes. It's, uh, why be captivated by an adulteress? <laughs> oh, great. I get the promiscuity message. Um, to which I respond, oh, man. I know, right? You'd be perfect for this one. You up for it? Yeah, I got it. I'm scared to death, but I got it. Love it. You rock, Mark Chaffee. Fear is good. <laughs> That's our loving pastor right there. <laughs> well, what the passage is, and I'll show you in a moment here, is this, from Proverbs 5.20. It says, why be captivated, my son, by an adulteress? Why embrace the bosom of another man's wife? Now, what I want to do first is I actually kind of want to back up and give a, a, a little bit of backstory, a little bit of uh, the few verses before this. Um, now, this is from Proverbs, so this is, you know, some old dude talking to this young guy who's probably royalty or some type, type of elite, trying to pass on some wisdom of, of the age, saying, hey, check this out. So what I'm going to be re reading here, the, uh, though it's metaphorical and it's beautiful poetry, um, this is actually talking about sex, okay? Starting at verse 15, it says, he says, Drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public squares? Well, let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a grateful, graceful deer. May her breasts satisfy you always. What is it with men and boobs? I mean, it's always been around, I think. Oh, now I lost my place. Oh, may you ever be in... <laughs> Still have issues. <laughs> may you ever be intoxicated with her love. So then, why be captivated, my son, by an adulteress? Why embrace the bosom of another man's wife? So basically what he's saying... You know, you have this beautiful one like wife, all you could ask for, all you could ever need. So why would you be captivated by someone else? Yeah, I wrestled with that question. That's what was going on with me in my younger days. Um, now what I'd like to do is I'd actually like to show you a couple different translations. Oh, how do I get back to the beginning? Can you go to the, uh, yeah, there we go. That's what I'm talking about. So this is the translation that I, that I had read. But there's some very interesting translations, and, and I love these. The ESC says, why should be intoxicated, my son? And I just want to focus on the first part of these verse. NSAB says, what for you should, why, for why should you, my son, be exhilarated, captivated, intoxicated, exhilarated? How about why should you be infatuated, my son? The message is kind of cool. It's a little different. Why would you trade enduring intimacies? For treat thills, thrills with a horror or dalliance with a promiscuous stranger. You know, when I look at all these different translations, you kind of see this theme here, captivated, intoxicated, exhilarated, infatuated. There's something deep here. There's something that's going below the surface, something that takes over, something that mesmerizes. 
something that nowadays we do call fantasy and unplaced desire. So the reason why I want to go deeper into this um, is I really want to go into the why behind the why. It's very easy to say, well, you know, the answer is easy. She's hot and I'm sinful and there's temptation. And so, yeah, of course I'm, you know, I'm going to sleep with the other woman, the other man's wife or whatever it may be. But I think it's more complex than that. And I actually want to go under the hood a little bit. You know, rather than just saying, you know, why isn't the car running? Oh, well, it ran out of gasoline. Well, okay, well, that's true, but what is it about the gasoline that actually makes the car run? And so to do this, I actually want to kind of go through a process, stuff that I've actually been reading and, and researching uh, for years now, something that's been fascinating to me, and that's actually looking at uh, philosophy, uh, psychoanalytical theory, trying to get under the surface to really understand a little bit more about what this thing called fantasy and desire is really all about. So I'm going to start with Immanuel Kant. Now, I'm just going to prepare you. This is philosophical, so there may be times you're going, what? How does this all relate? That's what philosophers do, okay? <laughs> they make you think. They're not just trying to give you answers, but they are asking questions to allow you to probe deeper. So Immanuel Kant he was an early 19th century philosopher who once wrote a thought experiment where he imagined an individual's obsession with his beloved, someone who isn't his. The beloved is completely inaccessible, entirely out of reach. However, an opportunity arises where they can be together, but just for one night. And there's a catch. If that union occurs, he'll be hung on the gallows the very next day. So for Kant, the solution is simple. Walk away. Well, so almost 200 years later, the psychoanalyst Jacques Lacan referred to this thought experiment and noted that the dilemma is much more complicated than it first appears. For Lacan, the gallows are not simply a deterrent for the lover. They also fan the flames of desire. The very threat of death makes the temptation all the more compelling and difficult to resist. Fascinating, isn't it? Now, what Lacan is talking about is something that we now call, if I can get there, it's called the object of desire versus the object cause of desire. Now, what this means, for example, is, uh, think of it this way. You know, you really don't want the chocolate cake. It's only because you're on a stupid diet that you think you want the chocolate cake. Okay? And you don't really want that brand new top-of-the-line BMW or Lexus or whatever it may be. You actually want how it would make you feel, or maybe the perceived increase in social status, or simply being less embarrassed when you pull up the PTA meeting in your junker. Um, or maybe you desire not having the inconvenience because your old piece of junk is always in the shop getting fixed. See what I mean? It's not about the new car at all. You don't really want to have an affair. It's only because you're in a boring, sexless marriage that has rules and boundaries that dictate you can't be with that person. That's why you want it. You want to feel wanted, desired, recognized, fulfilled. There's a perceived lack, and I'll come back to that in a moment. There's a perceived lack in your life, and we are always driven by that lack. We don't really want that other person. We want the fantasy of how it would make us feel. So Lacan would say that the other person may be the object of our desire, but it's the prohibition that is the object cause of our desire. Take away that prohibition, and you'll take away the desire for that other person. Now, um, building on this idea, 
Peter Rollins, who is a current philosopher and theologian who weaves a lot of psychoanalytical theory into his work, had a great way of putting it. I can't recall if I actually read it in one of his books or heard it on a podcast first, uh, but he shared this example a few weeks ago at a conference I was in in uh, Belfast, Northern Ireland. That's, that's, I'm the one on the right. He's the one on the left. That's Peter. This was actually the night we did a pub crawl in Ireland. It was a blast. We had some, you know, the Guinness in Ireland tastes so much better. I don't know what it is, but it was fantastic. So Peter actually has um, a cool example, and I'm actually going to elaborate on it a, a little bit. There's a couple. Let's call them Jack and Jill. They were such a great young lovers, passionate, energetic, adventurous. Life was great. The marriage couldn't have been more perfect, and the world revolved around them. So beautiful. Well, over time, the passion slowly fades. The sex starts to become perfunctory and not very adventurous anymore. Eventually, the romance is gone, and the googly eyes they had for each other fell out of their heads. That's a nice visual. Jill used to think that Jack's snoring was kind of cute, but now it annoys the heck out of her. And the way Jill has to change her outfits no less than 13 times before she goes out, well, that used to be endearing to Jack, but now it just kind of ticks him off because it always makes him late. Jack and Jill have become more and more busy with other things in their lives. They buy a house. They have a few kids. Jack is climbing the corporate ladder at a steady pace. Jill starts a successful business selling her handcrafted pottery online, and that takes a lot of her time. They say they wish they had more time together, you know, but secretly they're both kind of getting tired of each other. So now one day, Jack is out to lunch with some coworkers, and the waitress looks at him and smiles in a way that disrupts him slightly. She also seemed to be paying more attention to him than... Bob and Phil, and Jack sensed something. Hmm, does she like me? So over the course of the next few days, Jack starts thinking more about the possibility that this waitress has a fondness for him. He starts to imagine what it would be like to be with her, making up little scenarios in his mind. He ends up becoming really enraptured with her. He finally gets up the guts to go back to the restaurant, by himself this time, to see the waitress. We'll call her Snow White. <laughs> sure enough, they find there's a mutual attraction. And Jack is like, holy cow, this is great, awesome. Oh, wait, no, it's not. <laughs> I'm married. We can't hook up. Now, you'd hope that realization would put the fire out, but it doesn't. It actually begins to fan the flames of desire. Jack starts making up crazy, unrealistic fantasies in his mind about what the future would look like with Snow White if they could only be together. You see, Snow White is the object of Jack's desire, but the object cause of his desire is the prohibition. The fact that he can't be with her. After all, she's not really a princess. She's a single mom working three part-time jobs to make end meet. And if they did end up together, the reality would be shockingly disappointing and nowhere near the expectation of the fantasy world that Jack built up in his mind. We all know that it wouldn't make things better. It would be a disaster in ways that, obviously, we don't need to elaborate on here. So, from a philosophical perspective, once Jack gets Snow White, it's no longer a fantasy, right? It's a reality. So he may gain Snow White, but he loses his fantasy, and that's what drove his desire for Snow White in the first place. So now he's lost his desire for Snow White. So what now? Jack needs to start building a new fantasy, and that vicious cycle would just continue over and over again. Now, what Rollins would also say is that if Jill found out about Jack's desire for Snow White, she would actually want to uh, start to want him again. This is because what we actually desire is the other person's desire of us. Kind of like the old cheap trick song. I want you to want me. 
We see that in songs all, all over, right? You want to be wanted. Um, it's central to our human need to be loved, desired, wanted by someone else. Now, you know, to go back to the verse that uh, we read from Proverbs 5, um, you know, we can even use that termin- terminology um, from all the different translations. What we really want is the one who is captivating and intoxicating, infatuating and exhilarating to someone else. There's another interesting thing that Rollins says could happen. If Jill were to remove the prohibition and say, yeah, go ahead and run, off, run away with Snow White, that would effectively pop Jack's fantasy bubble, and he'd no longer want her. It would ultimately rob the fantasy of the power. So that brings up another thing, the lack. This is very deeply seated and embedded in um, common thought in psychology and uh, philosophy for, for, for quite some time. Um, and that's essentially, you know, that we desire what we don't have, and we want even more what we can't have. There's something we lack. Whether we feel like we deserve it or not, we're still driven by what may be missing, our incompleteness. Um, you know, for parents, you ever notice how, like, your kid, when they're small, they don't want the toy until they can't have it, you know? It's like you take it away from them, suddenly they want it. Well, you weren't really playing, but it's mine, you know? Even worse, if, like, their sibling has it, you know? The only reason they want it is because they don't have it. Their brother does, or whatever, or whatever it may be. It's crazy. So it's a prohibition that causes that desire. And just like Lacan said, the reason the lover wants the beloved is for the exact reason that he doesn't have her and can't have her. So this brings up another important thing to understand, and that's enjoyment versus pleasure. Have I lost you now? Probably. I'm losing myself. You guys with me? Okay. Now, enjoyment, which is the want, versus pleasure, which is the having. The way to think of this is um, enjoyment is is that fantasy, is kind of that desire. Say you want to buy a new house or a new car, and you spend all the time looking, and you're researching, and it's awesome, and you're going, okay, what about this? And, oh, this is a great school system, and uh, whatever. This car has, you know, the whatever it wants, and you really enjoy that. There's a lot of fun in that. And over time, and over time, it builds up, and you get more excited and more excited, and it's so enjoyable, more enjoyment. And then you get the car, and it's pleasurable. You have it. It's really nice for about a week. <laughs> That pleasure is fleeting, isn't it? So once you have it, you lose the enjoyment, even though you gain the pleasure. Like a child, you know, how, you remember when you were a kid, you'd be looking forward to Christmas for months and months and months. It's coming, it's coming, you're getting so excited. Christmas morning, you finally dig into the presents, and you've got your toy, and you play with it for 13 minutes, and you never see it again, right? Um, another one that actually uh, I thought of that actually really... Um, strikes me is that, think about the Cubs winning the World Series. Now, how does this fit? Now, the enjoyment for 108 years was the fact that we were looking forward to the Cubs winning. You know, I know for me, I was a huge Cubs fan. Every year, year after year, I I wouldn't miss games. When I was a kid, I'd have like the little transistor radio under my pillow at night, so my parents didn't know. I'd be listening to the late night, you know, West Coast games, knowing the players, what their stats are, getting really excited, you know, really understanding what things are going on. And that's ramping up, ramping up, and then 2016 comes. And we're so excited. We're enjoying the fact that the Cubs are the lovable losers, right? And then they win the World Series, and man, I mean, I I wept. I literally did. At last play, I was on my knees, and kids were making fun of me, but it was so pleasurable. It really was. But you know what happened? What I noticed? 
is that next season, 2017, I started watching less games. Didn't really, I mean, it interested me, but it wasn't driving me. It's like the enjoyment was gone. The pleasure of them winning the World Series just kind of sucked the enjoyment out of it. Not all of it, you know what I mean? But it really sucked a lot of the life out of it. So we are driven by that lack when we don't have it, as though we're missing something that will complete us. So, kind of summarize, I have a video clip that I want to play, and I think it probably puts a lot of this together a little bit better than I was able to explain. It's from a movie called The Life of David Gale, late 90s, I think it was late 90s, it's a a Kevin Spacey movie, and he plays um, a philosophy professor, and he actually gives a lecture on this very stuff, on Lacan, and um, I'd like to spin that. Ryan, if you could hit that. Come on, think. I want you to reach back into those minds and tell me, tell us all, what is it that you fantasize about? World peace? Thought so. (laughs) Do you fantasize about international fame? (laughs) Do you fantasize about winning a Pulitzer Prize or a Nobel Peace Prize? An MTV Music Award? Do you fantasize about meeting some genius hunk, ostensibly bad, but secretly simmering with noble passion and willing to I'll take two. What was that? I'll take two. Kimberly will take two. You get Lacan's point. Fantasies have to be unrealistic because the moment, the second that you get what you seek, you don't, you can't want it anymore. In order to continue to exist, Desire must have its objects perpetually absent. It's not the it that you want, it's the fantasy of it. So desire supports crazy fantasies. Sorry. This is what Pascal means when he says that we are only truly happy when daydreaming about future happiness or why we say the hunt is sweeter than the kill, or be careful what you wish for, not because you'll get it, because you're doomed not to want it once you do. So the lesson of Lacan is, living by your wants will never make you happy. What it means to be fully human is to strive to live by ideas and ideals, and not to measure your life by what you've attained in terms of your desires, but those small moments of integrity, compassion, rationality, even self-sacrifice. Because in the end, the only way that we can measure the significance of our own lives is by valuing the lives of others. Living by your wants will never make you happy. That's what he says. What it means to fully be human is to strive to live by ideas and ideals and not to measure your life by what you've attained in terms of your desires. I love how that um, ends and how that's put, Uh, because I think a lot of that is correct. And I think if we apply it to um, any area in life, even if it's not just kind of sexual fantasy and desire, to really keep it in perspective, to understand that what truly is important is measuring our own significance by how we've actually truly impacted others in a very loving and godly way. Amen? Amen. 
Now, this is the part of the, um, the message where typically, you know, guests will, you know, do things like really connect it to uh, just a beautiful song that they've written that's really come out of their soul. Like Kristen did a couple weeks ago, and, you know, we're all sitting there, we're weeping, and it was just so, so. And so I actually went back through my uh, catalog, and I thought to myself, you know, I know I was crazy when I was young. I mean, did I have any songs that were actually about this type of stuff? Well, oddly enough, I, I do. I mean, looking back, I could see what my heart was spilling out even back then as I'm wrestling through um, these issues even in the day. And I found this one that, whose lyrics were especially, um, especially good, and it's a song called Tantalize. I went through the lyrics and... Um, the lyrics are kind of kind of deep. It's a pop song, but the lyrics kind of they start out. If I can remember it, I forgot to write it down. The song is about personifying fantasy and desire in a girl that I call Tantalize. That's her name. And the lyrics say, "I know a girl so adored by the world that is for sure. Her name is Tantalize, and every man would surely die to meet her." The fruit of her design is fermented over time like good wine. But you better stop and think before you go and take a drink from her vine. My, my, tantalize. You know my heart's on fire. But it ain't for you. All I can do is turn and walk away. And it goes into kind of another verse really unpacking some of this stuff. Sounds really kind of cool, doesn't it? Well, I went back and listened to a recording of it, and I was like, oh, wow, yeah, this is actually a really hard rock punk song. <laughs> and it would be really awkward to play. And I'm like, okay, well, I'll try to do it acoustically. I'll pull it back and stuff. And I'm trying it. I'm like, oh, my voice is really a lot lower now, and this is just, I can't do this. So I wasn't even going to talk about it until I was online. I was on YouTube, and I found this old video. Okay, so this is the self-effacing part here where I, we get to make fun of me. It was from 1996, and it was actually with my band, um, not the Joneses, we were called back then. And uh, it was actually one of our very first gigs. And um, it was like literally, in, now we had some modicum of success. We'd, you know, we'd played in front of 10,000 people, opening for bands like Journey and stuff like that. It was great. But this is really funny because, so we're like in this church basement. It was one of our first gigs, okay? And there's probably like 10 people there. And it's this old, crappy, you know, video camcorder recording. And um, our stage presence is horrible. And it was like 22 years ago, probably 22 pounds ago as well, and about 22 inches of hair ago. Um, but I don't know. I thought maybe I'd play a little bit of it for you to make. What do you, what do you guys? Would you want to see something like that? Now this is only going to work if you really laugh at me, okay? And have fun, and we're going to crank it a little bit louder because that's what hard rock punk songs do. But know that the intent of the lyrics is actually very, very deep and serious, and I actually overlay the lyrics on there for you so you can see it. So this is absolutely ridiculous. Um, this is called Tantalize. Oh, not that. Did I do that? I don't know how many people here like this kind of music. Anyway, these are not the Joneses. They are an awesome band, and we should like, you know, give a little applause or something.
I didn't notice until just now that I was playing the exact same guitar I'm playing today. I think that's so cool. So to kind of end this stuff, can I invite you guys to stand? And uh, band, you can kind of come back up on stage as well. And I'm going to switch microphones, Tony. I'd just like to end by um, praying for us, if you wouldn't mind. Um, after that heartfelt thing that really connected us, I think it'd actually be good for us to kind of to, to slow down. So God, we do come to you uh, right now. Um, Lord, I don't know what each and every person's uh, snow white is here. It may not even be a person. It could be some other object, some other thing that we've turned into something that it shouldn't be. But Lord, we ask that uh, you help us get under the surface and get under the skin of that and so we can really begin to understand what fantasy and desire really does. And to know that we can't live by our wants solely. That we do have what we need in you. So Lord, we confess all of this to you. We even come to you with our own ridiculous songs that are inside our souls, Lord. Even if we don't have them written down. Lord, they are for you, and we come to you, straight to you, and ask you, not only for your forgiveness, but to come show yourself to us. We don't want to drink from the well of anyone else. We want to drink from your well. We give this song to you, Lord. Lord.